This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. I'm talking to Sarah Gordon, a white woman who lives in the Helderberg Hilltowns. She would like people to listen to each other and understand different perspectives. She has suffered tremendous backlash for creating a guide that any Hilltown business can sign on to if they pledge to be anti-racist. She believes the abuse and threat she has endured since speaking out against racism have helped her understand what a black person goes through every day. She has suffered threats and many of the words used against her have been sexist and misogynist slurs. Her five-year-old daughter, who accompanies Gordon to protests, understands kindness and knows kindness is always the right thing. So welcome, Sarah. Thank you for having me. I'd just like to start, when I set up this call with Sarah, for those of you that aren't filled in, um, her letter was about a directory. She wrote up for Hilltown businesses to sign on if they wanted to be anti-racist. And it got quite a response, 300 and counting on our Facebook page. And Sarah told me, you know, this is not about elevating white voices. It's about listening to black voices. So with that in mind, we can't help it. I should let our listeners know both of us are white women. Um, But if you could just tell us a little, Sarah, about how you came up with this idea and why you think it's important. Sure. Yeah. Um, and, and actually, just to, on, your, on your first point, I, I do really want to make sure that this is that the focus of the conversation that we're having is on moving the needle in terms of understanding and appreciation for other perspectives in the Hilltown community and tolerance for those perspectives um, and respect for those perspectives. And, and that's a big part of what has motivated me. And even right before um, this call and this podcast, actually, I was just on Facebook Messenger and people are, you know, calling me out by name and things like that um, as being, you know, the person who's organizing a lot of these these local protests and everything. And I'm just a citizen that is speaking out for what I believe in. Um, But I, I think that the backlash and the singling out of people is a real demonstration of the fact that we have a real problem with respecting other people's perspectives. Um, And that's one of the reasons that I I wrote this to begin with. Um, The, I mean, the murder of George Floyd struck me. Um, I think, you know, it struck everyone. It was not the first time, but it was one of the most vivid times um, that a murder like that has been captured on film um, or on video. And for me personally, hearing him call out for his mother was something that, that really hit me at my core as a mother myself. Um, But beyond that, I think that even though it's completely different, I'm white, I've enjoyed a lot of privilege in my life. Um, But I, I don't think that it's a fair leap for many women to be able to empathize with the idea of being summed up based on the way that you look. Um, 
and even have violence perpetrated against you based on that as well. Um, so it's, it's a thing that I think is very natural to stand up for as a human. We're talking about basic human rights, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of justice. Um, and, and, and that I think is, you know, really where the emphasis needs to be. Um, and, and the backlash to it, I think has been a real demonstration to my point. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I think you're right. Um, the New York Times has been doing this series, um, Seven Issues, Seven Days, on women with uh, things like um, how medical research has been based on men and how um, things like car safety is based on the size of a man's body, just all kinds of things systemically. And today's happens to be a beauty double standard. So you're talking about how women appear and are judged by appearance. I mean, the article starts out with how Michelle Obama, her husband just had to comb his hair. and She had had herself presented and quaffed properly and looked mm-hmm. properly because of how she was judged. And I think, yeah, that might be a parallel because I think a lot of us are struggling because so many of our black friends and the black people we know have said, you cannot understand it. You cannot walk in our shoes, Um, Mm -hmm. which is true. But if we can find ways in to empathize and to understand, uh, I think coming up with a sense of universal humanity, uh, it begins with that empathy. So you said that when you saw that tape, which of course everyone has watched the video and felt sick, horrified, enraged, all depending on who we are. What struck you the most is when he called out for his mother. If you could just kind of expand on that a little, maybe on you as a mother or your relationship with your own mother or why that's a, a common a common point of empathy and way into this. Um. I mean, I, quite honestly, I don't know how many words I can put into it. To me, it's it's a very primal thing that, I mean, we are we are humans, we're mammals. Um, it, 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 we that's something that as a community we should be able to understand, regardless. Um, and it 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 hit me at just a primal level. I would say that you know, it, it in my gut this is just such a clear demonstration of what is wrong. I mean, it's, it's like watching a cannibal basically. (laughs) Um, And, and I, I mean, I'm, I'm amongst one of the people speaking to my privilege (laughs) um, that has more time on their hands right now. I mean, I'm, I'm also a single mom and have a kid to keep up with and things like that. I'm not working right now not in an essential position that has necessitated or necessitated me to keep working. And I'm an office employee and I'm home. Um, So, I mean, it seems like one thing I can do with my time in this moment of pause is something to improve my community. Um, And to me, writing a letter to the editor is one very basic way to be able to do that. Um, And I'm, I'm heartened by the amount of support that it's received. 
I'm disheartened by some of the extreme backlash that it's received, but I'm also frustrated at the focus on me as opposed to the focus on the conversation. And it seems as though a lot of people who do oppose my point of view use me as a scapegoat to avoid dealing with the actual issue at hand. I think the same way that a lot of these straw man arguments of, you know, BLM being a hate group and different things like that, that pop up when you're talking to somebody in the resistance that, you know, it's, it's one more reason not to have an actual logical conversation. Yeah, well, what's horrified me in the reaction, partly because I feel like I played a part in it, was we wrote a story to run with your letter. And um, I thought the story was excellent. It was written by Noah Zweifel, our Hilltown reporter. And he did things like talk to one of the business owners that had signed up um, on this mm-hmm. directory. And she had really important things to say. She was a real estate agent. And she gave samples of discrimination she had encountered. And, you know, selling homes where someone would say, I don't want such and such in my neighborhood when I sell this. And she's just happy to do without those listings. Um, But we also got a reaction um, that centered on, it was my idea, instead of listing all the horrible things that were written online in response to the directory on the directory itself, um, anonymously, to, to pick just a sample. And that sample involved what a letter writers told me I should have only referred to as the C word. But it struck me if people can use this language in hate, we ought to be able to report it so that other people can understand the horribleness of it. So I will simply say it that word was cunt. And um, I have had that used against me And I was really proud last week when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez stood up on the House floor, having been called a fucking bitch by Representative Ten Yoho, and basically Mm -hmm. said, this shouldn't stand. This, this And I don't think C-SPAN censored her. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because because it it required accurate reporting. Mm -hmm. Um, and no, and, and I appreciate the fact that, that you did report that. And again, I think it loops right back to the beginning of this that, I mean, it, it, not to say that this is, it, I'm, I'm standing up for Black Lives Matter, um, but these in- issues are largely intersectional. And, you know, the fact that that is the reaction when a woman stands up to voice what her opinion about human rights is, um, is deeply problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and like AOC said, I mean, it, it gives permission when you use that kind of language to use it against other people and it creates a social norm out of it. And we don't need to be stepping backwards to the days where women or black people are fighting for basic human rights, although they are right now, um, because the right to life is not protected presently. But we definitely don't need to go backwards from where we are right now. And I think most people can agree and would tell their kids that's the wrong thing to do. And hopefully, hopefully the next generation is 
wiser and kinder. <laughs> yes, that one can always hope. I was very um, gratified with the sense of hope that I got. I covered a session, a prayer session that the county executive held soon after the uprisings in Albany in the wake of uh, George Floyd's killing. And one of the pastors, a Baptist pastor that gave a prayer there. David Trainham was his name. And um, mm-hmm. he said, we're like a mother that's been in labor for over 200 years. And now the baby is ready to come forth. And when the baby comes forth, the joy of this child is going to supplant all the hurt, the pain, the hatred, and the heartache we experienced. And I just appreciated that view because it had hope in it. It seems like if you go back 100 years, abolitionists were united with suffragists, you know, a century ago, and certainly Mm -hmm. made some progress. Uh, Women have the right to vote, and um, blacks were, in quotation marks, freed. But um, here we still are, um, fighting those battles again. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about the sense of hope at all, or how you hang on to it in the midst of the kind of backlash that you've been experiencing, but I'd like to hear what you think of that. Um, well, I know that, you know, the, the way that my parents raised me had a lot to do with my ideology growing up. Um, and, I mean, not to say that we're all brainwashed by our parents. A lot of us are a reaction to our parents, too. Mm-hmm. But, but I mean, I, I have a five-year-old daughter now um, who has come with me to the protest. And, and she understands kindness. Um, and she knows that that's the right thing always. And so it's, it's not hard for her to understand doing the right thing you'd have to deprogram her in order to get her to understand doing the wrong thing. And I think that that is sad that enough people, you know, have been, have been essentially deprogrammed against what is essentially cannibalism (laughs) Um, or the way that society clouds it is, um, it, it, this is probably a portion worth deleting, quite honestly. Um, but I, I think that being a parent gives me hope because my daughter has a natural inclination to want to be kind. And as long as I make sure that people don't teach her otherwise, that's the natural direction that I think that she'll grow in. Um, and it's, it's my intention to make her very aware of the systemic issues that exist from the outset so that she sees them when she's growing up and can also speak up um, as she's growing up too, um, which is, is something that has been handed down to my family through generations um, I think I think a lot of these things get handed down through generations, and unfortunately, I think honestly, in in the hill towns, racism has been able to hide for generations. We live in a rural fringe; we're not confronted with anything other than whiteness on a daily basis, really. And 
And I think that makes it very easy for fringe views to hide in our community. Um, and without naming names, I can think back to a handful of people whose comments I never respected when I was growing up in my class at BKW who do hold positions of authority and power now. And I think communities like ours, if we don't pay attention and if we don't take responsibility and recognize ourselves as all being culpable, continue to be a pipeline for the injustices that we see show up on our televisions. Um, so as a parent, in the context of thinking about the next generation, I think that's especially important in fringe communities like ours that we not be a bastion for fringe views. A couple of things that you said really <clears throat> make me want to ask some more questions. One is I've noticed in covering local protests this time around something very different from <clears throat> when I was in protests myself in the 60s um, is children. I have noticed there was a, a, a march in Altamont where there were as many children as adults. And um, yeah. in the 60s and early 70s, I didn't see that. Um, and you spoke so really insightfully and passionately about how being a parent has shaped um, what what you're doing now, the idea that your five-year-old daughter is kind and will remain kind unless she's taught otherwise. If you could just talk a little about what you've observed, um, you know, with the current trend towards having children be part of this movement. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think that it's really commonplace now for kids to get introduced to social issues really early in life. Um, and, and I think also with... With a number of, of social movements that have been kind of largely, have had a central theme of empathy anyways, um, having to do with school shootings and bullying and racism and, and violent police and all of these issues, um, I think that there's a lot more awareness, especially amongst the millennial generation, um, about the importance of of kindness and empathy and i think that that's something that um you know it's it's gotten a lot of attention in more recent years than it used to and i think that it's something that as the millennials are having their kids now are are really paying attention to um and you know we're my generation i'm 36 i'm a millennial technically i'm not crazy about the term but um you know, I, I was raised by the boomers and the boomers were out in the streets and they, you know, maybe didn't have as many issues. They were protesting out in the streets during the 80s when we were all born. Um, but the groundswell has come and I think millennials have proven to be both vocal networkers um, and disruptive, whether it be to the employment market or retail or, you know, any number of things that millennials have supposedly killed at this point. Um, it doesn't surprise me that we're being somewhat disruptive in how we're raising our kids. 
um, and, and looking to significantly move the needle in terms of impact um, with, in terms, for social justice. Yeah, another thing that you said earlier that <clears throat> interested me, you were saying how in a rural area it's easy to hide and some of your classmates who are now in positions of power um, had views that weren't called out. And I covered the Burnox Westerlo schools for a couple of decades, um, maybe 30 years ago. And I just remember being so struck. There was um, a racial slur that was called out on the playground. And there were a group of teachers that decided to do something about them. Two that are still around are Molly Tiffany and Helen Lounsbury. And they set up um, an exchange with Giffen Memorial Elementary School in inner city Albany so that the black kids and the white kids could play together. They were pen pals together. They bust back and forth. Not a, a school busing with like integration, but you know, sure. visits, field I trips. Was, so I was actually in Molly Tiffany's third grade class when they did that program. Um, oh, wow. And was part of it. Okay. Um, and and yeah, honestly, I mean, as a kid growing up in Bern, I mean, I, I was surrounded by cows. I grew up on a farm. And it was really the first experience that I had had, you know, with more than one black person at a time, you know, going down to their school and playing in the playground and making new friends and, you know, being immersed in their school in Albany as opposed to up in the hill towns, um, which, I mean, look around you are very different looking communities. Um, and I, it was a positive experience. Um, I, I give the school a lot of credit for doing that. And I know that there are a lot of good people at the school continuing to work on these issues. And that's important because it is such a white community. But to be completely honest, that was also probably the last experience that I had that was like that until I was a senior in high school. And I did the honors program, New Visions, I did New Visions Long Government down in Albany. Um, and that was really the next time that, you know, I was 17 at that point. Um, that I was mixing with people that didn't come from, you know, the backwoods of, of the hill towns. So what could a school do about that? I mean, w- when you talk about the importance of empathizing and the importance of moving the needle, what what would be, you have a daughter that's about to start school in whatever form it's going to take in this pandemic era, but what what would be a good thing or several things or ways for a school to conduct itself? It can't really help the population that it has. Um, sure, yeah. No, and I mean, yeah, there are a lot of undercurrents that, you know, keep keep this going. It's, it's systemic. Um, it that's a really difficult question, and and I give a lot of credit to the superintendent over at Burn um, for the thought that I know that he's putting into it um, because I think he I think he understands the community that he's serving very well, and I think he's extremely well intentioned of you know doing good here. Um, but when you look around, it's not a diverse community, so to offer experiences of diversity 
especially when schools, you know, are strapped with things like transportation budgets and everything. It, it's very difficult. Um, and I, I totally get that. I think that, you know, there should be more than just Black History Month in schools. Um, I think that I think that there's been a real loss of investment in civic education in schools. And and yes, I mean, you know, there are history classes and things like that. But as far as I know, the New Visions Long Government Program has been canceled. Um, I mean, a lot of these issues come down to systemic policy issues. And there aren't a lot of opportunities for policy, current event education happening necessarily in the classroom. Um, I think, you know, you can bring in speakers. I think just hearing from people on a regular basis about their experiences living on a day-to-day basis as Black people Um you know, it goes a long way to just paint the picture of, quite frankly, how much bullshit they're putting up with. Um, something that I was talking to my partner about right before I got on this podcast that, you know, over the last several weeks, I've gotten a lot of heat, which is what it is. And I was prepared for before I did this. I still am frustrated that it's being directed at me instead of necessarily at a productive conversation. Um, oh gosh, where was I going with this? Well, you were talking about, you, you just were talking, <laughs> no, you were just talking with your partner right before the podcast because um, you, you were saying how so much of civic education has been canceled and there's just not a lot of opportunity, but just having people into the classroom, maybe they could talk about how much, black people have to put up with is what you were saying on a daily. Yes. Yes. Thank you. That's back to my point is that for the last, for the last handful of weeks, you know, I've, I've put up with some level of inconvenience of, you know, waking up to Facebook messages. And I did have a few people that were advertising my home address and making threats and things like that. Um, But imagine how bad it would be if I were black standing up in this community doing that. I mean, would the cops have come to my house? I hope that they would have. Um, I I like to believe that, um, and I, I'm not trying to cast fingers otherwise, quite frankly. Um, but it the white privilege of not having to deal with racism on a daily basis goes completely unrecognized by the people who don't understand what people deal with on a daily basis. Um, and I think if people just saw and understood how much more complicated it makes your life every day and how very small situations like getting pulled over for your taillight being out turn into life-threatening situations. I don't understand how any person, if they truly listen to that experience, would be able to justify saying that that's okay. Um, So I I think a lot of it is just about educating, but also getting people to be willing to listen. And and that's not to say placate to people, Um, but I think in communities like ours, and especially has been been demonstrated since... um, or at least demonstrated to me since I started speaking out in the last couple of months. Um, 
people, it's a, it's an extremely difficult conversation to have. And if you can't get someone to listen and internalize it in the first place and have an open mind about it, you're not going to go anywhere but backwards. Um, so it's, it's, it's very difficult. <laughs> I, I hear you, Sarah, because I'm in the business of trying to get people to listen, and I hope they're listening to this podcast, and I hope they're reading the paper, and I hope they're reading books on anti-racism. But yes, it is much easier for people to make you or me or the newspaper into a target rather than trying to hear what you're saying or read what the newspaper is writing. Um, yes, I hear you. <laughs> Absolutely, I, yeah. I'm, One example that I can call out of the, and, and again, I do not want to make this about my personal experience. I want to get back around to, to the point here. But I think that this is really telling. I So I was asked by a local family to help get the word out about a local protest that they wanted to organize because they hadn't done something like that before. Um, and I'm someone that now for like 17 years or so has been working in like nonprofit outreach. So I'm, I'm somewhat skilled at being able to put together a grassroots event. And they asked me for my help and I was, you know, happy, happy to be able to help. Now on Facebook that has translated to me being the one that got the permit in the town of Bern, which is not the truth. Um, I'm not even a resident of Bern. That's being screenshotted and copied and pasted around the internet. People are threatening to show up heavily armed. We'd have to call the sheriff's office about it to make sure that there's protection there. There's talk of getting several groups involved to make sure that there are legal observers present. And this is all because I offer to help a young teenager from Bern who's interested in getting into their first foray in public activism. And this is how the community has responded to it, turning me into a lightning rod, vilifying me, and pissing all over the right of this young person to be able to stand up for their beliefs. And that's, to me, truly ugly, and really goes to demonstrate my point that we need to get a lot better at listening to each other. Um, and we need to get a lot better at respecting each other's opinion and each other's life. 